maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. A warm welcome to all of you here in London and around the world watching online. This is the seventh debate in our series of Google Plus versus debates, organised by Intelligence Squared. And tonight, the motion before us is fight your own battles. Foreign powers should not intervene in the Middle East. And as we know, the Middle East has been shaped, one way or another, by Western powers since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Lines drawn on maps divided territories and created nations, but also started or uh, deepened bitter rivalries. For decades, the region has been riven by religious and sectarian violence, with the foreign powers never very far away. The death toll in Iraq has topped 100,000 since the invasion in 2003, and looking slightly further afield, as Western forces prepare to leave Afghanistan, the Taliban remain undefeated. And of course, there's Syria. As the death toll there soars, we ask whether foreign powers are duty-bound to intervene militarily. Or do lessons learned from Libya mean that it's time for foreign powers to keep their distance? And I should stress, by intervention tonight, we are speaking very specifically about military uh, armed intervention. Well, it is altogether one of the most challenging questions of our time. And here to thrash it out, we have four stellar speakers, two of them right here uh, in the Sadler's Wells Theatre in London, and two joining us online via Google Plus Hangout from the United States and from 
Qatar. Uh, for the motion, our speakers will be Sir Andrew Green and Susan Abelhawa. And against the motion will be Nick Tyrone and Shadi Hamid. And wherever you are, you'll get the chance to put your questions to our speakers. Uh, for those of you watching online, we have with us Ash Bardwaj, who's uh, in the Hangout. He'll be monitoring your questions as you send them in and putting them to the panel. And remember, the way to uh, communicate with us and to make your voice heard is to uh, post your comments on the Google Plus Versus page, uh, where you can uh, uh, comment there and elsewhere using the hashtag Versus Intervention. That's uh, hashtag VS Intervention. And as with all Intelligence Squared debates, we've already asked you to vote either uh, on your way here in the hall or online. And the pre-vote results as you came in this evening. Now remember, this is before you'd heard any of the arguments, before you'd been moved by the stellar rhetoric of our speakers. This was a, a kind of indication of where you're coming from. Those of you who were for the motion that foreign powers should not intervene in the Middle East uh, were 44%, a big number. Those of you against, who, in, who, were for, who have no problem with foreign powers intervening in the Middle East, were 28%, and an equally large figure of don't knows, 28%, unsure. And that, I would say to our speakers here and in the Hangout, uh, is your target audience, if you like, to try and persuade some of those 28% uh, to come off the fence and to come onto your side. So, all to play for with uh, more than one in four people undecided and waiting to hear uh, those arguments. So uh, let's get underway right away uh, with, those with the arguments as we were going to hear them. First up, to introduce uh, the motion and speaking for it, speaking for the idea that foreign powers uh, should not intervene in the Middle East, is the former British ambassador to both Syria and Saudi Arabia, serving in those places in the 1990s. He was the Middle East director in the Foreign Office here in London and is the founding chairman of Migration Watch UK. Here to get us underway, speaking for the motion, Sir Andrew Green. Good evening. The news from Syria seems to get worse from day to day, and I think everybody here would like to be able to help. The question for us tonight is whether military intervention really would help. I don't believe that it would, which is why I strongly support the motion. And why? Because Western intervention, and especially military intervention in the Middle East, just doesn't work. History, as ever, is instructive. The Anglo-French invasion of Suez in 1956 was a complete disaster. Afghanistan is not looking good. And more recently, Western military force has been used twice in Iraq and Libya. And now people are talking about intervention in Syria. So let me just take those in turn. Very briefly. First of all, Iraq. We were told that Saddam posed a very serious threat to the West, that he was in league with al-Qaeda, that he was the possessor of chemical and biological weapons. Both those claims turned out to be false. But that did not stop us from causing the most immense physical damage in Iraq. Worse than that, we disbanded their army and we abolished the only political organisation they had, the Ba'ath Party. In short, we completely uprooted their society. And the latest news? According to the United Nations Special Representative, 3,000 have been killed in the last three months, 7,000 injured. It would seem that the country, despite our intervention, perhaps because of it, is slipping back into sectarian violence and chaos. How about Libya? We were told we were saving the inhabitants of Benghazi from an assault by Gaddafi's forces. Well, we succeeded in that. Then we continued with 18,000 air attacks, caused huge destruction and tri triggered a civil war. And the latest news? Last month, clashes between pro-government militias and demonstrators in Benghazi left dozens killed and injured. Other militias are running wild in the country, 
and the southern part of it is slipping away from central government control. So yet again, yet again, we have a complex and chaotic situation far beyond the capacity of the West to tackle and certainly to tackle by military means. So lastly, Syria. We're now being asked to intervene there. It's made to sound like a kind of limited engagement. Just supply a few arms. But that's bound to lead to problems of delivery, training, ammunition and so on. And of course the opposition will come under even heavier air attack and we will be asked to intervene. In short, we will get sucked in. The West will get sucked in. Have no doubt about it. We'll get sucked in to a terrible civil war. Now, there are some who argue that it's worth it because that would somehow level the playing field. But, you know, as matters have developed uh, in Syria, that's no longer possible because we face an extremely tough regime now supported, now supported by Russia and Iran. There's no way that a divided and disorganized opposition will overcome those forces militarily. Only last week, the commander of the Free Syrian Army said, in his region, it was chaos. We need to be absolutely clear. Western military intervention will not bring victory to the rebels. It will only pour petrol on the flames. It's surely now obvious that military intervention is not the answer. Certainly not to these incredibly complex political problems. The Assad regime has been demonised, and with very good reason, they've done the most terrible things. So have the opposition. But even so, you know, it's quite clear that the minorities in in Syria, who amount to about 40% of the population, would rather have the devil they know than uh, be run by a regime under the strong influence, to put it mildly, of Islamic extremists. And if our thinking goes no further than to say the world is better off without this or that dictator, then we've got a lot to, lead, lot to learn about life in these countries. So finally, the only way forward is to seek some political means of winding down the fighting. That means talking to the Russians and the Iranians, who are the people who have real influence and real power uh, in Damascus. We need a ceasefire, we need a separation of forces, we need a transitional authority. That's an incredibly daunting task. But the alternative is to see Syria slide further and further into chaos, with the conflict spreading to Lebanon, as has started already, and a deepening of the sectarian divisions in Iraq. Now, with Egypt, for quite different reasons, on the brink of widespread disorder, disorder, the outlook is actually as uncertain in that region as I can remember in nearly 50 years. We will be very wise to ensure that we do not make matters even worse by blundering in with another Western intervention. Thank you. Sir Andrew, before we bring in our next speaker, I just want to put to you the statement very recently, and he's repeated it actually, by former Prime Minister Tony Blair, saying that inaction is itself a policy. I mean, to do nothing is to do something. Uh, And uh, there are consequences to doing nothing, uh, not just in terms of loss of life, but even uh, diplomatically, etc. It means empowering whoever's the strongest party on the ground. What do you say to that? Well, yes, of course there are consequences of doing nothing. What I'm saying is that they're much less bad than the consequences of doing something. Okay. Let's bring in uh, our next speaker who's going to... uh, And and please, Sir Andrew, stay there, because to challenge you from the Hangout is the Director of Research for the Brookings Doha Centre and a a fellow at the Saban Centre for Middle East Policy. He's also a frequent political commentator for Al Jazeera and a correspondent for The Atlantic uh, magazine. And he is Shadi uh, Hamid, and you're joining us from the Google Hangout. Shadi Hamid, you you have the same time as uh, Sir Andrew Green. You can use it however you like, either to challenge him or to make some of your own remarks. 
Great. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Let me just to start by posing a question to the audience. Do you want to live in a world where more than 100,000 are killed and many more tortured, raped, and disappeared? as has happened in Syria. Now, if you answer that with no, as I hope you would, then we have to have a second question. How do we stop mass slaughter? And unfortunately, the answer to that is very clear. The only ones who have the military capacity and resources to stop mass slaughter are foreign powers, and namely the US and its allies in Europe. Now, let me just take a step back. When the Arab Spring started, uh, American and EU officials would often say things like, it's not about us, it's about them. Arabs have to make their own future. But what we have learned is that it is partly about us. People power is not enough. After the first two revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt, the following four revolutions or near revolutions um, had an important international component. Foreign powers were decisive, for better or worse. And two of the most obvious ones there are Libya and Syria. And I remember in March 2011, that final day when we were waiting to hear whether the US and NATO would intervene, Gaddafi's forces were marching onto Benghazi, threatening mass slaughter. And I remember being so nervous, hoping that someone would stop because we knew what was going to happen. Gaddafi was very clear about his intentions. And finally, NATO did intervene and we did stop a mass slaughter. And no one should think otherwise. Libya was a success based on those standards. The slaughter was stopped and now Libyans, for all the difficulties they're facing, have the, have the freedom to form their own path right now. No one said transitions are going to be easy, but at least Libyans now have that chance. Now, there are negatives. I wish it were, were otherwise. I'm an American, and we have a tragic and sometimes terrible history of intervening in the region. Uh, we've supported dictators to the tune of billions of dollars, and of course there was the Iraq War, one of the great blunders of our times. But what I'm asking you, the audience today, is not to support all interventions, but to make a distinction between bad interventions and good interventions and to support the latter. Because good interventions, as in Syria and Libya, are the only way to stop mass slaughter. Now, let me just, I'll just go ahead and address two other concerns. Do we have the capability to make things better? And the answer to that is yes. As senior military officers uh, on the US side have made clear, if the order comes from Obama, the Syrian regime can be defeated. The concern, though, is the day after, and understandably so. But in the case of Syria, the day after will come regardless of whether or not we intervene. The question is, do we want the day after to happen after an endless stalemate, after maybe three or four years with another 100,000 killed? Or do we want to shorten the conflict and reduce the number of people killed? And again, I would say the latter. There is also the legitimacy question. Is there legitimacy in the region for doing this? And again, the answer here is yes. Um, I take very seriously what Arabs on the ground say. And the Syrian opposition from October 2011 has been calling on us to intervene, not just with arms, but with surgical airstrikes or the establishment of a no-fly zone or a safe zone. In October 2011, the theme for one of their Friday protests was no fly zone Friday. So this is not an American imposition. This is being demanded by the Syrian opposition themselves because they understand there is no other way for them to claim victory. There is also widespread regional support as well from Turkey, from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia, from Tunisia, and also from our European allies like France. So this is not a unilateral American effort. And it's not the kind of invasion that Sir Andrew talks about that happened in Iraq. There would be surgical airstrikes, um, establishment of safe zones to protect innocent civilians, but no one is talking about boots on the ground or a full-scale invasion. So just to close right here, 
we have the rationale to stop mass slaughter, we have the capability militarily, and we have the regional legitimacy to do so. So with all of that in mind, I would ask you, the audience, to vote against this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Shadi Hamid. Thank you. Coming to us loud and clear all the way from Doha. And um, let's put some of those points in, in the remaining minute allocated to this, uh, Andrew Green, to you. Uh, the notion of distinguishing between good interventions and bad interventions. And the, 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 there is no blanket ban on these interventions here. Maybe this case, 100,000 killed in such a short period of time. We've got the capability. We could stop it. We should. Well, the question is not do we want to stop it. Of course we do. The question is can we? Um, and uh, I, I read, read Shadi Hamid's work very, with great interest, writing in The Atlantic in February 2013. He said the war in Iraq was one of the greatest strategic blunders in recent U.S. foreign policy. Now, it rather sounds to me as he wants to repeat that blunder. Uh, in in a, an article uh, in June of 2013, he said, what we need is a credible threat of airstrikes and no-fly zones, which is more or less what he said this evening. But you cannot have uh, a no-fly zone unless you take out the air defence. And the uh, Syrians have a very substantial air defence provided by the Russians, enough to counter uh, the Israeli threat to them, which is very considerable. It's a totally different situation from, okay. uh, from, from Libya. Let's put that to Shadi Hamid then. It's not possible because partly those very serious air defences. Um, well, yes, those air defences would have to be taken out, but that is something that General Dempsey on the US side and other senior military officials have said is possible through different means. Would it be difficult? Yes. Would it be risky? Yes. Is it possible that an American plane could be shot out? Yes. But um, no one is saying that there's such thing as a cost-free intervention. What I'm arguing yeah. is that it is possible and it is worth it considering the loss of life that has happened and will continue to happen if we don't act. Thank you. Thank you, Shadi Hamid, and also Sir Andrew Green, if you take your place back here. Um, and we'll pick up many of, the, uh, the, of those questions as our debate goes on. Um, let's move on to the next uh, speaker, this time against the motion. Remember, the motion before us is foreign powers should not intervene in the Middle East. So here to make his case on, on that side of the argument is the Senior Advisor on Public Affairs for the Electoral Reform Society here in London, a regular contributor to Total Politics, the Huffington Post and the New Statesman, where he has been arguing to keep military action in Syria firmly on the table. He too will have six minutes. I'll ping my glass after five, but please to make the argument against the motion, Nick Tyrone. Thank you. Uh, most arguments for this motion, and indeed we heard this with Sir Andrew's opening remarks, will focus on the fact that the West has not intervened in the Middle East particularly well or in a balanced way in the past. And I would agree with this, mo this notion. And the crux of my contention is that this does not let the West off the moral hook in this regard. Yes, I agree that liberal intervention has often not been done well in the past, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, Iraq and indeed Afghanistan being two wars I was personally against. I'm also of the strong opinion that if liberal interventionists want to win this argument, they need to absorb that to move forward. Um, but I do feel that uh, direct military intervention in Syria is necessary, and I will argue that case now. So how is Syria different from Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of intervention being appropriate, in my opinion? I believe there are two main rules of engagement that should be applied to liberal intervention going forward. One, intervention must happen only when a war is currently being waged, i.e. when conflict is already in motion. Uh, as you will know, this was not the case in Iraq or Afghanistan, which are two of the main reasons I was against intervention in those instances. The second rule is the West must have, a clear, have, must have clear cut goals that are verifiable and easy to articulate. So I, if you look at Afghanistan, it's still unclear to me, 12 years on, what was the exact reason the West went in. You know, was it to find Osama bin Laden? Was it to oust the Taliban? Was it uh, to appease the US? I mean, it's, it's, to me, it still remains unclear, as I'm sure it is to many others. In Iraq, it was supposedly about WMDs that were never found. Yet in America, the Bush administration tried as hard as it could to link Iraq with the events of September 11, 2001. So examining Syria, intervention there would have one clear-cut goal, and that is simply to end the bloodshed that is currently going on. Uh, people are being killed en masse, and we want to bring that to an end as quickly as possible. 
So let's look at the West's, what I think are the West's three options in regards to Syria. One is do nothing, which is currently, is currently the way it's going. Two, arm the anti-Assad forces. And three, some form of direct military intervention, whether that be boots on the ground or that be uh, a no-fly zone. There's many options in that regard. And I support the last of the three. Uh, and not because it's the perfect solution, but because it's fraught with loads of peril and difficulty, actually, but because it's the least bad by far of the three, in my opinion. So first option, the West does nothing, what happens? Well, what would happen if the West continues to sit on the sidelines uh, is it, I think, I believe, demonstrates the folly of taking a dogmatic line on the West never intervening in the Middle East better than anything else could. I believe that without something uh, exogenous to the conflict as it stands being introduced, I'm of the opinion that the war just will simply go on and on and on. Uh, we're in a very bad sectarian situation there, uh, and thus I can see the civil war in Syria going on for another 15 years, and even then only ending with outside help. Uh, the key thing to state is I don't believe that Bashar al-Assad can ever peacefully rule Syria again. Uh, I believe he chose to make this a sectarian conflict, and by doing so, he's ensured that he can never be president of a becalmed united Syria ever again. Turning to the choice of uh, arming the anti-Assad forces, this looks possibly, this is on the table now, and looks likely, actually. I'm against this not simply because of the often trotted out problem of the West not knowing where the arms will eventually end up. I think the real problem with arming the rebels is, A, we don't really know who we're arming, uh, as we see the, the faction of the uh, anti-Assad forces happening in front of us. Uh, and I, but I think the real reason it's such a bad idea is I feel that it would actually ramp up the conflict and cause more bloodshed, um, which is surely what we're intervening to stop. So that brings us to option three, which is direct military intervention. There's many ways that we can go about it that we can discuss later. In closing, one myth I'd like to debunk here and now is this idea that the war in Syria has nothing to do with the West, and therefore, for that reason, we should stay well clear. I take you back almost 100 years to World War I, and something called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which uh, was agreed between the British and French in secret at first. The Russians eventually leaked it. Um, and it was about carving up a post-Ottoman Middle East in a semi-random fashion. In fact, if you look at the southern border of Syria, it still conforms to the line that was drawn in the sand uh, by a British civil servant in 1916. So ultimately, Western imperialism partly threw the people who are fighting each other in Syria together in the first place, Ipso facto, the West is at least partly culpable for what happens in the Middle East. And finally, I leave you with this. We in the West are the only ones who can stop this massacre, and I believe because of the past and indeed the present, we have a moral obligation to do so. Thank you. Yes, of course. Um, thank you. You need to be a bit louder there. Um, so, Nick Tyrone, before we mm. bring in our, our, our full speaker just to respond to all of that, uh, the, just going broader than Syria, the point that Andrew Green kicked off with was that mm. the, record, the track record is just not very good. When yes. There is intervention, it doesn't work. Mm. And in a way, your closing point was almost to say, look, we've made this mess, therefore we should do more. Um, and so how do you deal with that point, just the quite pragmatic point, the record of history? Do you believe there's anything good has come out of the century almost of Western intervention in that region? I think the record is getting better. I, I happen to think that whatever... Uh, I agree with uh, Shadi's point about Libya. You know, I think that it's not perfect there by any means, but I think we helped avert a much worse crisis than could have been, certainly in terms of lives lost. Um, I'd point to the French intervention in Mali recently, which I think was a success. Again, it comes back to this idea that the, the goals have to be very clear-cut. You have to go, we want to go in here to take out this... However it works, you know, it just, the, the military ob objective has to be, uh, sorry, very clear. Um, and I, I just don't think that was, that's been the case, for instance, in Iraq or right, Afghanistan. Right, it could work. Oh, all right, well, let's um, uh, bring in our full speaker to challenge you. And coming to us <coughs> live from Philadelphia in Pennsylvania uh, from the Hangout is Susan Abulhawa, who's a prominent Palestinian-American writer, human rights campaigner, and commentator and author of the 2010 internationally best-selling novel, Mornings in Jenin. And Susan Abulhawa, you have the floor either to challenge uh, Nick or to make your own remarks. Thank you. Um, in 1944, the U.S. State Department said that Middle Eastern oil was, quote, a stupendous source of strategic power and one of the greatest material prizes in world history. That same year, President Roosevelt said to the British ambassador that, quote, Persian oil is yours. We share the oil of Iraq and Kuwait. As for Saudi Arabian oil, it's ours. Of course, no Arab or Persian was invited to that conversation. 
all U.S. relationships and interventions in the Middle East since then have revolved around this Western sense of entitlement to other people's natural resources, which also exists towards other regions such as Latin America and Africa. Ensuring the free flow of cheap oil meant that Western interventions were driven not by the promotion of freedom, democracy, or human rights, but by the ruthless ethos of dominance and empire, including the removal or assassination of leaders, installation of client regimes, the suppression of nationalist struggles, the propagation of internecine fighting, and the manipulation of nations with threats, aid, and duplicity. The first overthrow of an elected leader by the U.S. in the Middle East was, in fact, in Syria in 1949. A CIA-backed coup then installed Colonel Hosni Zaim, whose first order of business was to approve a previously blocked U.S. oil pipeline project through Syrian ter territory from Saudi Arabia to the Mediterranean. When Mohammad Mossadegh, the elected leader of Iran, nationalized his country's oil, deciding that Iranian oil, in fact, was for the Iranian people, not the British, the United States, at the behest of Britain, engineered a coup in 1953 to oust Mossadegh and replace him with the Shah, whose reign of terror over his people lasted for 25 years. Likewise, when a popular uprising in Iraq replaced the puppet monarchy with a nationalist government, government in 1958, headed by Abdul Karim Qasim, the response of the West was not to encourage this move towards self-determination in, in Iraq. Instead, the U.S. instigated another coup that would allow the Ba'ath Party to consolidate power, kill the backbone of Iraqi society, including a long list of individuals compiled by the CIA of intellectuals, progressives, nationalists, doctors, scientists, teachers, and ultimately would bring Saddam Hussein to power, who would brutalize his people with the blessing of the United States and who would attack Iran also with the blessing and many would say encouragement of the United States. The U.S. first armed Iraq and then turned around and gave support and arms to Iran to ensure that neither gained the upper hand in the fighting, the murder, and the inhumanity would continue as long as possible. Then the U.S. switched sides again, arming Saddam once more. They gave him the chemical weapons that were used to kill tens of thousands of Kurds and Iranians, and which would later be used as a pretext called WMDs to attack Iraq in the second Gulf War. Over one million people were killed in the Iran-Iraq War, and far Far more than that perished in both Gulf Wars that were spaced out with 10 years of crippling sanctions. U.S. intervention in Iraq did not just target military installations, but the infrastructure of life, including roadways, nearly all electrical plants, sewage treatment, and water installations, such that Iraqi society continued to die of rampant disease and malnutrition long after falling bombs stopped killing them. An estimated 500,000 children under the age of five died as a result of sanctions alone. And in the vulgar arrogance we have come to know well, Madeleine Albright said that the death of those small lives was, quote, worth it. That arrogance was echoed recently by Hillary Clinton when she described the devastation of Libya and the murder of Gaddafi with an infantile soundbite of, quote, we came, we saw, he died, unquote, and she laughed. In fact, unlike the rosy narrative my opponent hinted at in his opening talk, intervention in Libya had nothing to do with humanitarian reasons. The ongoing killing, executions, and tribal infighting in Libya gives a lie to the notion that NATO intervened to prevent slaughter. Libya is now a NATO outpost plagued with tribal infighting, deteriorating basic services, which had been among the best in Africa, with free education, free health care, zero national debt, home ownership as a human right, free electricity, high literacy rate, high life expectancy. And with the largest oil reserves in Africa, Libya is now primed for rampant corporate looting. And what of Western... Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV intervention in Palestine. What does one call Western intervention when it allows a political movement born in Europe, supposedly under the auspices of none other than God, 
that proceeds to rape, pillage, murder, and steal home and heritage of the indigenous people of Palestine and a long-standing campaign to erase Palestine from the map and destroy our ancient society as if it never was. This brief sampling of recent interventions in the Middle East by Western powers does not encapsulate the staggering human cost across our tortured region. One nation after another lay in tatters and ruin every time the West intervenes. Once high-functioning societies have been reduced to striving for mere survival. Why then would any Arab or Persian invite such a force into our midst? Are we so stripped of agency? The best we can imagine is to be saved by this power that so clearly holds our lives and our cultures in such contempt and such disrespect. Revolution must be one that ends the imperialist or colonial relationship between the native population and the oppressor or the exploiter. We have not run out of options in Syria, and these can be discussed in the Q&A session in the interest of time. But we should remember that the so-called international community is not merely the West. The world is full of nations and peoples with the kind of moral capital that comes from having fought and triumphed in anti-imperialist struggles who can be asked to intervene with agendas of national reconciliation in deadlock situations where we might need outside help. The West and their clients are bereft of such moral capital and their agenda has been proven repeatedly okay. to always be counter to local nationalist aspirations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susan uh, Abelhawa. Let's um, just, put, just give you a chance to respond to some of that, Nick Tyrone. Uh, essentially, that case that interventions, when they've happened, have been about self-interest, centrally about oil, and that that has been the motive rather than any of perhaps the slightly more high-minded motives you've been offering of humanitarianism. Well, if I could just intervene with um, one thing that I agree with Susan on is that the, when you speak about internationalism, you are not just talking about the West. And that's actually extremely relevant to the region and extremely relevant to Syria. For instance, the Russian interest in Syria goes way back, actually goes back to Sykes-Picot and the Russian Revolution. And also the, the how should I put it, the correlation between particularly new Ba'athism and socialism. So there's a, there's a current that runs there. Um, and a lot of that is about historic ties. Um, so, and I would also point out that in Syria, again, this doesn't apply to Iraq, but it applies to Syria. You know, there was a mass uprising. You know, that's why there's a civil war there. You know, if, if, if we were talking about a situation where everybody was happy with the status quo, there wouldn't be a civil war. The civil war was not... Was, not, was created internally. Okay, well, let's just hear Susan. Just very briefly on that point, you know, you've made this strong case about the American involvement, but you can't say to those people who originally went on the streets against Assad that that was all about oil. They had their own motives and own demands. And they, some of them, we heard from Shadi Hamid, some of them are calling on the West to intervene militarily. Well, um, yes, you're right. It was started internally, um, except that the other side is also Syrian. So um, right now, the Syrian population is so immensely traumatized and I will say it's primarily because of, of Assad's uh, brutality and, and barbarism that started this. But the hatred, what, where we are right now is that the hatred runs so deep that the primary objective for each side is really to obliterate the other. The very real, credible sentiment that regardless of who gets the upper hand in Syria, there will be a bloodbath. So it seems that both sides at this point are fighting literally an existential war for survival. The problem is that proposed interventions... Um, and, and current interventions, because um, Nick is, is right, there, there are already um, uh, interventions. Russia, China, and Iran are helping the regime, and uh, Qatar, Saudi, Turkey, and perhaps, although not confirmed, some covert assistance from the U.S. as well are, are siding with the rebels. There are further credible reports that foreign fighters have joined rebel groups, um, including Al-Qaeda, uh, turning the, the conflict into a low-level proxy war. All the current proposals right now for direct military okay. intervention include picking sides. So are we, if, if the U.S. goes in, are we sure that uh, China and Russia aren't going to step in to protect their interests? Um, you, you know, I think cool heads really need to prevail at this point. Someone needs to go in with an agenda of national reconciliation because both sides are Syrian. This is not a foreign power. Okay, I would be very interesting to hear, Nick Turin, I'm going to ask you to come back, but it will be interesting to pick up with you later, Susan Applehauer, who, which country that might be that could go in and, and, and broker kind of reconciliation if it can't be the West. Nick Turin, why don't you come back, take your seat. Thank you very much for your uh, presentation and to both of you for that exchange. Thank you. Um, we're now going...
now's the time we're going to open up the debate. Uh, hear some of the voices here in Sadler's Wells and also around the world uh, following the debate uh, online. Um, so let's see some hands go up. We've got microphones here and people uh, armed and ready, so as it were, um, wrong word to use, uh, but with a microphone to um, get, take a question from you and we'll take more as they come up. Yeah. I'd like to pose the question to um, Susan Abuhawa. Um, you talk a lot about how the West has intervened for their own self-interest, in, including Iran. But from my knowledge, Syria doesn't have any oil, and its biggest export is cashew nuts. So surely by intervening there, they're intervening definitely for moral grounds, or potentially the only self-interest is for limiting the influence on Iran in the Middle East. And as an Iranian, I think that's only a good thing, because the regime in Iran is rather naive and they only want to create nuisance in the world. And so, therefore, surely by intervening in Syria, because there is no oil in that country, it okay. is from purely moral grounds. Thank you. Um, let's take another couple of questions, and then we'll put them to our panellists. We've got a hand up here. Uh, where's the hand up? There we are. You've got the microphone, have you? Yes, you go. Um, I just wanted to ask you if perhaps you could uh, give examples um, of perhaps uh, successful historical American intervention in the Middle East. Okay, um, and the microphone was where next? There's a yes, gentleman there. Yeah. Hiya. Um, I just wanted to put, pose a question to the, the two speakers uh, that were against the motion. Um, why do we spend all this money having a foreign office or the UN or the EU if we just never use it? Okay. I think diplomacy needs to be exhausted before we decide on military intervention. Thank you. Um, so we've got lots there. I'm going to ask our speakers to be brief. Uh, we've got the gentleman here. Is there a way we can get the microphone to him quickly just to squeeze this one in? Okay, I got the question. It's unfortunately, the microphone's cutting out, but I got the question that some of the fighters are not Syrian at all. They are um, coming in from abroad. So why don't we um, go to you, first of all. Uh, Shadi Hamid, brief answer. What, you know, you've advocated military intervention. The question was, whatever happened to diplomacy? We have lots of diplomats in the world. Why can't they broker uh, a peaceful way out of this? Last two years, there's been so many diplomatic initiatives in Syria there was the Arab League initiative, there were two UN missions, there was Geneva 1, Geneva 2. All of these have been driven by a fantasy that Assad will negotiate in good faith. He will not. He's made that very clear. He's a brutal leader. Why are we engaging in fantasy? He has no incentive to make real concessions, and he's made that very clear. He has said that he will not step down. So what is the mystery here? The way people make concessions, the way they come to the table in good faith, is if there's a consequence if they don't come to the table. That consequence here has to be the credible threat of military force. That's how it worked in Bosnia and Kosovo. That's how we reached an agreement there. And when we are talking about successful interventions, we have three, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Libya. So the record isn't all bad. Okay, you may have preempted the question I was going to put to uh, your partner here, Ty- uh, Nick Tyrone. Uh, you've got you've had some examples from there, but strictly speaking, Mali is not Middle East, nor really is Bosnia and Kosovo. I'll give you Libya, um, but um, but what can you add to anything to the list? The question wanted successful examples of U.S. involvement. Really, go back the take the whole century as your uh, 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 as your period. <laughs> this is probably the hardest one to field of the evening. Um, I'd probably just look at Libya uh, again. Uh, I think that's probably a good example where there are mitigating factors on the U.S., you know, where you have European involvement. I think that's good. I think if there was going to be something like that in Syria, that would have to take place. We would have to have, uh, we'd have, to have the EU, British, uh, Britain, France uh, involved for it to, to work, I believe. So I would just believe that, yeah, if, if U.S. intervention is going to work, it needs to be mitigated by other Western forces. Okay. Um, Andrew Green, very quickly, the point was about diplomacy. You heard uh, Shadi there saying that you, all those efforts haven't gone anywhere because there's no credible threat of force behind them. Well, I think we need some clear thinking here. I mean, what are we trying to achieve? What is the military objective? Are we trying to remove the regime? And if so, how will Russia react to that in terms of getting involved themselves? How will Iran react to that? Uh, And if we do get rid of the regime, we'll have chaos. Uh, We'll have the Islamic Republic of Syria. Uh, Military intervention is not a magic wand. Uh, And wars are much easier to get into than to get out of. It's only when you have a complete stalemate 
or the defeat of one side, you go back into, uh, into diplomacy and they deal with prisoners and, 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 and sort out the results. But uh, getting involved in a war is not going to accelerate diplomacy. Okay. Um, I want to make sure we don't leave Cameron's uh, question. Our 17-year-old who defined himself as a Persian, and his question was to you, uh, Susan Abelhawa, which said, uh, you know, this can't be about oil because there is no oil in Syria. The most they've got is cashew nuts. Uh, possibly it's about restraining Iran, but it, he, he believed there was a moral motivation given there isn't oil, which you put front and centre in your, your argument. Yeah. I don't really see any examples of, of uh, a sense of uh, inter intervention on moral grounds uh, historically. I mean, there are five million bodies uh, uh, murders in the Congo war. Um, you know, there's no more outrage there. There's not even any attention to, to that many black bodies piled up because it serves American economic interests. So I think we need to, the, the idea of that the West is, is driven by some moral pangs is really disingenuous. Um, you know, uh, you're right, Syria doesn't have any oil, but, but Syria is, is still a strategic player um, in the Middle East. And I think, you know, the quandary that, that the United States is facing is that, frankly, they, they, haven't been to, they haven't been really unhappy with the Syrian regime because they've, uh, you know, they've, they've kept quiet, they've, uh, they haven't really tried to take back their own territory, the Golan Heights, or um, they, they've been cooperative in this so-called war on terrorism um, with the United States. Um, uh, so, um, you know, and, and also the, uh, uh, you know, the speaker said that, um, uh, you know, Iran was a, a nuisance. I mean, I find that peculiar considering, I mean, if you, if you, if you put the number of countries that the West, um, including the United States, has attacked uh, in the past 20 years, um, you're going to have a really long list. And on the other side with Iran, you're going to have zero. So, um, again, I think that's, that's disingenuous. All right, let me just pause it there because we want to bring in people who are putting the, fielding their questions online or putting their questions online and gathering them for us is our web host, Ash Bardwaj. What do you have, Ash? Jonathan, thank you. Um, we've had plenty of comments coming in this evening uh, on both sides of the debate. But generally, the feeling has been that uh, the West has handled intervention badly, uh, largely due to very little planning for what happens after Iraq being a particular case in point. Um, Bobby Abraham has come in via Google+. Plus. And he points out that intervention can be vital. Uh, if you look at Egypt, the military removal of the Muslim Brotherhood stopped them doing a Hitler, as he put it. But uh, James Kilner has a question uh, also via Google Plus for, for those in favor of intervention. Um, it's kind of a slippery slope argument. Does this mean that global intervention is limited by uh, geographic or religious constraints? Should the EU, for example, be as concerned with the plight of victims of a terrible regime in the Pacific as it is when war breaks out in the Balkans or North Africa. Okay, well, let's um, hear some views on, on both, both of those two points. Um, let's start with uh, that first one, the notion, I want to hear from you, Sir Andrew, whether uh, your opposition to intervention is a pragmatic one, which is that basically, as the question put it there, the record is, shows that it's been handled badly, or do you have an in-principle objection that's, uh, that's sort of an anti-imperialist argument that says the West have no business there, even if they did it well? I think it's largely pragmatic. Uh, I think all these countries are extremely complex and very different from each other, and you have to judge each one uh, on its merits. Uh, and the differences are simply enormous between each of them. Uh, it would probably lead me to say there are very few circumstances in which you should get involved militarily because you can't control it. Once you start it, what are the soldiers going to do? How do they know friend from enemy? How is it going to stop? How are we, in, in the Syrian case, we're going to be fighting the Shia Muslims of the Middle East. Is that a good idea? I don't think so. All right. I wanted to put to you, uh, Charlie Hammond, this uh, question that uh, Ash relayed to us uh, about global intervention and whether or not there's a kind of regional logic to this. In other words, it should be the regional players who, if there's going to be intervention, they should be the ones doing it. So, yes, Europe, the European Union, should be the lead actor in the case of the Balkans. But if there's a Pacific a problem in the Pacific, that isn't Europe's business. And a problem in the Middle East should be dealt with by the nations of the Middle East. But they can't be dealt with by the nations of the Middle East. There is no Arab country that has the military capacity to take out the Syrian regime's air defenses. This is not an opinion. It's a fact and it's a reality. And that's again why I come back to this issue. Yes, a lot of us have that inner Noam Chomsky in us that says, you know, U.S. intervention is bad and will always be bad. 
But we have to go beyond that. Just because we've done very bad things in the past doesn't mean we have to doom ourselves to doing bad things in the future. If you have a friend who goes out hurting people, you don't tell him to just stay home and never go outside. You hope that he can be better, that he can do the moral thing, that he can go out and help people. Why shouldn't it be the same with our own countries, for the British people in the audience, for the Americans and for others? Don't you want your countries to be better, to do better? And that's what I'm saying here. And I agree with some of Susan's argument about history. But are we tied forever to our history or can we change? I believe that the US and Europe can change. And I think evidence of that came in Libya. And the alternative to me is so much worse. The alternative is to live in a world where we stand by and do nothing when we see mass slaughter. And again, I would ask the people in the audience, are you comfortable watching another 100,000 people killed in Syria when you know that your governments in Europe and the US can do something to stop it? Thank you. Powerful case put there by Shadi Hamid. Who in the audience would like to respond to his question? It was a direct question to the audience who said, are you prepared to live in a world where this kind of slaughter can go on? Who, who perhaps has already voted no to the motion, or rather yes to the motion, uh, that foreign power should not intervene? Who would like to take on Shadi's question? The lady here in the front, if we can get a good a couple of hands. If we can get a microphone to you, lady in front. I just wanted we'll to echo the sentiment that Susan said about the vulgar arrogance that it takes. I resent the notion that I am accepting that that is going on because I am against intervention. The idea that I am somehow, um, you know, acquiescing to the, to the idea that it's just okay for it to happen because I'm against intervention as though intervention is the only possible answer. I, I resent that. And you, and you, because your argument would be presumably that you, you think that intervention risks making it worse. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think to say, <laughs> to say we can change is a, is a lovely optimistic human notion, but I don't think we can do so by repeating the same mistakes we Thank you. previously made. Thank you. Very direct response, and Andrew Green is giving you a thumbs up uh, here uh, from the former ambassador acting in, with diplomatic sign language. Um, let's, uh, let's go to another question. Is this directly in response to Shadi Ahmed's sort of challenge? Yeah. Yeah, so in response to the challenge, I think it's a disingenuous question because what he's effectively suggesting is that the choice is between saving 100,000 lives or not saving 100,000 lives. <clears throat> but the actual choice is between not saving 100,000 lives and unknown consequences and saving 100,000 lives with unknown consequences. And what we do know about consequences has been in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. If we save 100,000 lives now, you can't tell me that 500,000 people more will lose their lives over the following decade. You just don't know that. And yet we look at the history and we can see pretty clearly that the death toll following an intervention vastly outweighs the number of lives we can optimistically claim to have saved in the intervention itself. OK, I think we'll put people who are against the motion, we'll give them a chance to come back to that. But, Ash, uh, we have somebody uh, there with you and or, or through you. Why don't you let us uh, know about that? Uh, Jonathan, that's right. We actually have an online audience member to, uh, ready to ask a question directly to the panel. Um, so, Mark Agnew, over to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, my, my question was, uh, really comes from a sense of how much do the panel uh, believe that uh, our desire to intervene um, comes from um, or is fueled by a sense of, kind of post-colonial guilt? I suppose kind of another way I was thinking of is um, how much do we feel we have a responsibility to tidy up previous messes we've made? Thank you. Very good direct question. Why don't we put that to you, Nick Tyrone? I'm just wondering if you, given your accent, maybe you're are you from the United States or from Canada? Canada. So you have pre-colonial guilt, perhaps. But the uh, <laughs> but for the British, we have post-colonial, and Americans maybe have kind of during colonial guilt. But, yes. but why don't you um, respond to this question? Quite a deep question, really, about yeah. the motive is because we want to clear up the mess we've already made. Well, I would agree. I would call instead of calling it post-colonial guilt, I would call it post-colonial responsibility. Um, to invert Susan's argument, actually, I, I would have thought I thought we should have intervened in DRC. I really do. I think that was because in the, again in, in the Congo. In the Congo, yeah. yes. Sorry, um, uh, just to be clear there, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. That's what I was. That was the uh, uh, anyway. Um, so uh, I think that there's that, um, and also I think if we look at something like the Syrian civil war. I think the problem with it is 
Um, I mean, uh, Shadi's addressed the, the diplomacy issue. I think we're looking at a civil war without end because I can't see how any... Who, how does one side win? What, what does that look like? How do, what is the end to this? And I really do think it will go on for years. If we don't intervene, I really think it will go on for years and years and years. And I'd just like to say one thing is remembering Iraq... If we recall Iraq, it, there wasn't a war there in the first place. It comes back to my first rule uh, that I put forward about intervention. There was no war in Iraq, so trying to compare, compare the lives lost in Iraq with w- the possibility in Syria, I just don't think is actually uh, analogous. And this is the point you and Shadi have both been making, that to, calling for a distinction between, as you put it, Shadi, good and bad interventions, and it's not a, a, a blanket rule. Um, uh, Sir Andrew Green, what about this uh, point that, yes, the history is pretty dismal, but governments and countries and people can change, and that it isn't impossible that we do better in the future what we've done poorly in the past? Well, I think, first of all, our ability to influence events in the Middle East is far less than it was. Uh, when I first went to the Middle East, we ran the defence and foreign affairs for the entire Gulf. Uh, of course, that's gone long ago. Uh, our actual, uh, as the UK and even as the US, uh, certainly as the UK, our influence is very limited and, and American influence is declining. Um, But I I do return to the practicalities. Uh, I'm afraid the war in Syria is likely to continue for a considerable time. The civil war in Lebanon lasted for 15 years, and it only came to an end when the Syrian army, ironically, moved in and shot anyone who disagreed. Um, Now, we don't have anyone to move into Syria, and regrettably, the chances are that it will continue. Both sides cannot afford to lose. They and their families will be massacred by the other side. So uh, it's the, 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 we mustn't underestimate the, the anger, the desire for revenge, the fear that now pervades Syria. Uh, and to suggest that some Western uh, military intervention is an answer to that appalling situation cannot possibly be right. Uh, we have to operate through uh, those people who have real influence in the region, and that's not us, it's the Russians and the Iranians on the ground, and of course the Americans and the Saudis and others. It becomes a diplomatic problem as to how to get pressure onto the parties and get a negotiation started. It's incredibly difficult. I want to just follow up exactly that point about you mentioned there of Russia and others to Susan Nabilhawa. This notion of uh, calling for the Western powers to stay out given their history. In the particular case of Syria, but there are other examples, is that a slightly purist position given that other countries really are involved? And so Russia isn't involved in just diplomatic ways. It's militarily uh, backing up and reinforcing the uh, Assad government, but also Qatar, Turkey. There are all kinds of players involved. Has, in a way, this horse already bolted? Everybody else is already intervening. And so why is it only incumbent on the West of, uh, alone to stay out? Well, uh, you know, the, Russia and China uh, have been supporters of, of the Assad regime, um, for better or for worse. Uh, but it's an it's entirely different matter what, what's being proposed here is to actually put boots on the ground. Um, so that's 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 a really a very serious escalation, and it seems the problem is that, and it's and, and Russia and, and China's uh, uh, involvement is is also very problematic too. Um, you know, de- taking out the um, the Assad regime, you know, nobody wants wants this guy in power. To he, he's a brutal dictator, but. All, all of the proposals are to take one side over the other in order to obliterate the other side as if both sides were not Syrian. And it's not just going to affect Syria. This will have uh, regional consequences. You know, to, uh, the most likely result is that if the U.S. goes in, Syria, who knows if, if China and Russia will, will be involved and in, in, in this will be far, a far bigger disaster. Um, but Syria could be balkanized. Hezbollah, of course, would be broken. It's the only resistance in, in Lebanon. And, of course, that leaves Iran even that more vulnerable. And, and the U.S. and Syria have been salivating to, to attack that last, the one standing uh, nation in, in the Middle East that has shown any kind of defiance to this ongoing, rapacious, barbaric imperialism that has plagued our entire region. Sorry to cut you off there. Just, we, we, we're running okay, low sorry. on time. Um, we're going to have to just move, I'm afraid, to closing remarks from uh, each of you. Uh, why don't we begin with uh, you, Sir Andrew? Why don't you make a closing case, uh, if you would, for foreign power should not in the, intervene in the Middle East? And really, it's, we're talking 20, 30 seconds. Well, I think the two members of the audience put the points uh, better, than, better than I did. I mean, I think the, 
the, the short answer is it's, it's not doable. It'll make the bad situation worse. Okay. And Shadi uh, Hamid, a closing argument from you there in Doha for why foreign powers, in effect, foreign powers should intervene in the Middle East. It's funny because Sir Andrew inadvertently made my point in one of his previous comments. He said there's no clear end to this. Both sides see this as an existential battle. This could just keep on going on. That is precisely the point that Nick and I are making. This could go on for four, five, six years, even longer, because no side has the capability to defeat the other. One side has to be losing for a real diplomatic negotiation to happen. One side has to feel that there will be consequences. That is why the credible threat of military force is actually not going against diplomacy. It's actually crucial to what Sir Andrew says he believes in. The two actually go hand in hand. And I would just also want to correct a factual error. The death tolls after Western interventions do not necessarily go up. There are three cases where that was not the case. Bosnia, Kosovo, and Libya. So let's just be you know, clear that, again, there are bad interventions and good interventions, okay. and I really think it's important to make those distinctions clear. Thank you. And moving over to uh, Pennsylvania for her uh, closing remarks. Susan Abelhauer, as briefly as you can, if you can. You know, just to keep with Syria, um, Buckminster Fuller once said, if you want to change something, build a better model to make the other one obsolete. The rebels are in control of, of certain regions in, in, in Syria right now. They've been unable to form a government and the leader of the coalition recently in this month um, resigned his post because they were, they've been unable to form a government. Why not help the rebels in the regions where they have control to establish something uh, that is life-giving, that is positive to the population, that would make the, the other model obsolete? I mean, this, this idea that we have to go in and kill and destroy, which, is, which really everybody knows is going to breed more of that. Um, okay. Who let the dogs out, I'm asking, uh, to myself. But um, uh, I, let's make a closing uh, remark from you, Nick uh, Tyrone. Uh, you, your case was that the foreign powers should intervene in the Middle East. I'm tempted to say you want to unleash the dogs of war, um, <laughs> just because we are hearing that barking. But why don't you just um, close us out with a, a, a concluding remark? I guess it just comes down to if the people of the country rise up against the dictator, an unelected uh, person who's ruled the country in a particularly vicious way, should the West support them? I just happen to think that that's the case. It's why I was against Iraq, um, because basically the West judged Saddam Hussein. They said, look, we don't think Saddam Hussein should be there, so we just went in. Um, whereas Syria, there is, there is a civil war going on. I mean, that's how strong the resistance to Bashar al-Assad's regime is. Um, looking at the whole idea of, um, you know, sort of ongoing U.S. imperialism, I mean, look at Libya today. Whatever the problems are with it, I don't think we can look at Libya today and say it's some sort of U.S. stooge. It's not like the U.S. went in and installed some dictator. This is not an Allende Pinochet kind of situation. So I think trying to draw those parallels, I just don't think that works. Uh, I think the idea was to have a have a, uh, 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 to have democracy work in Libya. Whether that works in the long term, I'll close with this: is up to the people of Libya. Thank you. Um, and thanks to uh, all of you um, who've contributed to such a spirited debate this evening. I'm glad to tell you the final uh, vote results are now in. Uh, before I reveal the final results, let me remind you how you voted uh, before this debate, either online or here in the room. Uh, voting for the motion were 44% who said, yes, foreign powers should not intervene in the Middle East. That was 44, 28 were against, and there were 28% of don't knows. Now, having heard all the arguments for and against, uh, the motion that foreign powers should not intervene in the Middle East won 66% of the vote. That's two-thirds. 29% uh, were against, so a small uh, uptick of just one point. But uh, that don't know vote from 28 went down right to 5% and moved almost on block over to the proposers of the motion. So I can declare that the winners are Sir Andrew Green and Susan Abelhawa, who made the case that foreign powers should not intervene in the Middle East. Uh, they won that mar uh, by a pretty clear, uh, 
thumping margin of two to one. It's time for me to thank you all for being here this evening and for following uh, online. You can continue the debate online uh, on the Google Plus Versus page. Uh, for now, though, I'd like to thank all our speakers, Sir Andrew Green and Susan Abelhawa, and also Nick Tyrone and Shadi Hamid. Uh, thanks to uh, Google and uh, Intelligence Squared for making all of this possible. And don't forget to follow uh, Versus on Google Plus. But for now, from me, Jonathan Friedland, it's good night. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.